0: So I'm really thankful to be back with y'all. Thanks for having us uh, again. We are going to be in Psalm 32 this morning, which I was surprised to find out a group of people in this church, maybe a large group, I'm not really sure, are memorizing together uh, this summer. I'm not really sure. So I did not know that. Uh, But it's amazing the way that God works, that he would have us in this text together. So many of you are already in it, memorizing it. You probably know it better than I do. So we'll look at it together and see what God has for us. In Psalm 32, you're going to want to keep it in front of you uh, this morning. Psalm 32, we'll read the whole thing together. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Father, you know far better than we know what our hearts need this morning. And so as we look at your word together, your word that never returns void, that always accomplishes its purposes, your word that stands forever and penetrates us right through bone and marrow to our very hearts, God, don't let us leave this room this morning without encountering you and what you would do in us, the way that you would convict us or encourage us or change us or conform us. God, we want to hear from you. That's what we're desperate for, and so would you come and speak to us and change us to be more like our older brother, our Savior Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. I have a um, Mild obsession with true crime, like TV, podcasts, movies, all that kind of thing. I don't know if uh, you guys are into that kind of thing in Clemson. Probably not. Probably too holy for those sort of things. But I love those shows and podcasts and all that kind of stuff. I, like, cannot get enough of it. I just finished one on HBO. I won't mention what it is. But they're amazing. I love all of them. But it's kind of ironic because they always uh, lead to this, like, recurring dream. Uh, maybe nightmare is a more appropriate word that I have. Like, I'll go to sleep and I dream this dream. I've committed some crime. Or at least I'm thought to have committed some crime and I'm on the run and the police are like after me and I'm looking over my shoulder, like covering my tracks. I'm in the hotel room, right? Like you're always in a hotel room when you're on the run. It's just what you do. And like the police are going to knock on the door any moment and like, you know, just get me. Like it's such a fearful moment. I don't know why I do that to myself and set myself up for that recurring dream that I have over and over and over again. I always think when I see stories about people who've committed some crime and are on the run, remember that couple in Alabama a few weeks ago that was on the run, they escaped from prison? I always think, that sounds horrible. Like just waiting for the moment that you're gonna get caught up to. Because you know it's inevitable, probably. Well, maybe you don't if you're actually doing it, I don't know. But that excruciating moment, it's why some criminals get caught. And they say, you know what? In some sense, I'm glad I got caught because it's absolutely excruciating just waiting for what you've done to catch up with you. It's a horrible way to live. You know, Sir Arthur Kernan Doyle, who wrote Sherlock Holmes, he used to say he believed that everybody who lived to the age of 40, so if you're over 40, you're going to want to pay attention to this, everybody who lived to the age of 40 had at least one skeleton in their closet that they didn't want exposed. So him and a group of friends decided here's what we'll do. We'll find our most righteous friend, the guy who does everything right, okay? And we'll all be in on it. We'll send him a telegram that says this, all is discovered, flee at once, okay? So imagine getting that telegram. He says, we don't know if this story is true, by the way, I feel like we need to say that. He says, they sent that telegram, the guy packed his bags, and they never saw him again. Because we're all hiding something at some level, right? We're all terrified that our sin is going to eventually catch up to us. We laugh at that story, but the reality is, for so many of us, every day is kind of like that. Maybe it's something really specific that happened in your past. Maybe people know about it, like it's out in the open, but you've never lived it down. You've confessed it, you've dealt with it as best you can, but it eats away at you every day. Or maybe it's just general, just general guilt, like a nagging sense that you just don't live up to expectations, you're kind of a fraud, you're always waiting to be exposed. You know, Francis Schaeffer used to talk about this in this way. He said, imagine that when when you were born, when you were a baby, they attached like a recording device to you, and you didn't know it was there, but your whole life it only picked up on when you said things like this. Everybody knows you should blank. Or, can you believe that person did blank? And then he said, imagine if you got to heaven one day and you stood before God. This is not what's going to happen. Just imagine. You stood before God and he just threw out his law altogether. He didn't even judge you on the basis of his law. He only judged you on the basis of your law. If he said, hey, remember when you said everybody knows to do this and you should never do this and you should always do this? How'd that go for you? And we know, right? We'd fail that test miserably, which leaves us in this place. We know we don't measure up. We know deep down we're frauds. No matter what we, you know, put out externally, no matter what image we portray to the world, we know deep down we have this nagging sense of guilt that we have to deal with. And here's really what this psalm is going to teach us if you want to boil it down to its basic point, it's going to teach us that we cannot live the kind of life that we truly want, the blessed life. You could call that the happy life, the life you really want, unless you know for sure that your sin and guilt have been dealt with. Now, this is a a great gospel preaching church. You know the gospel. You know what happened to your sin on the cross. But the question is, do you really know it? On a day-to-day subjective level, can you apply the gospel and go, my sin really has been dealt with? Or do you still have that sense, that nagging sense that follows you everywhere you go and is just waiting to expose you? So that's what this psalm is all about. And I just want to say, you, you might not be a believer here this morning. Uh, we're open to that. We're glad you're here. You might not use terms like sin and guilt that's okay. But we're all kind of at, this, at a level playing field here. We all, Christian or non-Christian, have this sense, have this idea, have this feeling inside of us. Judith Shulevitz, who writes for the Atlantic and New York Times and other places, calls it the eternal inner murmur of self-reproach. I hope I write one phrase like that, like my whole life, right? The eternal inner murmur of self-reproach that we know we don't measure up and we've got to do something with it. So here's how David puts it in this psalm. You're going to want want to go back there to Psalm 32. He says basically this, because of that sense that we have deep in our souls that I hope I've convinced you of by now, you're like, "I, I get it, like I walked in with it, I know. He says, we've got to do something with it, and we really have two choices. We can either cover it, or we can let God cover it. That's what he says in verse one, and then again in verse five. We know we need to be covered. The only question is, who's going to do it? Our sin leaves us feeling exposed, and we're desperately trying to figure out how to cover it up, and that's what we see at the very beginning, right? Genesis chapter 3, sin enters the world. Adam and Eve know the deal. They know the one tree they're not supposed to eat from. They eat from the tree, and the very first thing they do is what? Cover up. They feel their nakedness. They feel their shame. They feel their exposure. They cover up, and we've been doing it ever since. And so, two options. We either cover ourselves or we let God cover us. Let's cover those and then we'll be done. First of all, we can cover ourselves. What does it mean to cover ourselves? Let me just give you a few ways that we do this, and hopefully I'll hit all of us in the room by the time we're done in ways that we cover ourselves. The first way is this. We cover ourselves by shifting the blame. We shift the blame. That's how Adam handled it. You know, you think back to when God comes and kind of confronts them about their sin. What does does Adam say? He says, well, this woman that you gave me. So you see what Adam's doing there? Two people are to blame and neither one of them is me. Uh, This woman right here, I can't even really remember her name. And remember, by the way, God, that you put her here in the first place. Blame shifting, right? Oh, we are so good at that. That we cover our sin by shifting the blame. Here's how it might sound for you. Listen, I only really sin because somewhere along the way in my past, I was sinned against. And so that's the only reason it keeps popping back up in my life. Listen, I only sin because no one appreciates me. I don't get paid what I'm worth. My family has no idea what I do for them every day. I'm unthanked, unappreciated, unloved. I deserve this. I deserve to give in to this sin. Listen, if my coworkers weren't so lazy... If my spouse wasn't so uh, not sexually responsive, I wouldn't have to sin like this. See how easy that is? Shift the blame. Push it off. How about this? If people weren't so dumb, so insensitive, so frustrating, if they just voted for the right political party, I wouldn't have to get set off like this. Like, they caused the sin. We shift the blame. Second way we cover ourselves is we keep our sin hidden. We keep our sin hidden. This is what David does, right? Right? He sins with Bathsheba. He has an affair with her. And what's his gut level immediate response to his exposure? I got to cover this up. I got to figure out how to hide it. I got to figure out how to make this go away. And maybe you do the same thing. You think, well, I know I've sinned. I know I'm guilty. Best way to deal with it is just to keep it out of sight. So we bury it. We delete our internet history. We lie. We do whatever it takes to keep our sin hidden, and keep God at arm's length. Thirdly, we cover ourselves by minimizing our sin. So it sounds like this. You assign certain levels of seriousness to sin, right? Like here's a level of sin that I'll never approach. And so I might be selfish, and I might be, uh, lack self-control, and I might have a little bit of anger, but I don't touch these things. And so I'm good. I'm covered, right? And then lastly, this would be me, by the way, We cover ourselves by dealing not with our own sins, but with other people's sins. So here's how that looks. I feel guilty. I feel exposed. I feel ashamed. Maybe it'll feel better if I just pick apart everyone else around me. Maybe if I just expose everyone else's sins, I'll feel better about myself. I've already done that this morning on the way here. It's so natural for me. How about for you? By the way, just as an aside, have you ever noticed that um, your sin and other people bothers you the most? Like whatever you struggle with, if you see them doing it, it bothers you so intensely. It's like a mirror holding up to you, right? And so we pick other people apart to make ourselves feel better and we could go on and on and on. We know we need to cover ourselves and so we figure out ways to do it. But listen, can we, just, can we talk for a second? Just you and me? Like, we know it doesn't work, right? Like, what if just your day from yesterday was up on this screen? Everything you thought, everything you felt, every desire you had, every word that came out of your mouth, every emotion that you felt, what if we just like all knew it? What if you knew it about me? You would not be letting me preach right now. You absolutely would not. We, we know we got to get covered, but these methods, they don't work. They can't cover our shame. They can't cover our guilt. They can't really deal with our sin. And so David realizes this. Look back at verses 3 and 4 in Psalm 32. He says, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your heavy, hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. What a picture of the graciousness of our God. You know, think about David's sin with Bathsheba. For all intents and purposes, he has gotten away with it. He's the king. He's got a lot of power. He's got a lot of people working for him. He has covered it up pretty well. Uriah's out of the picture. Bathsheba's now his wife. He, for, he's good. And God's like, no, we're not good. And it gets this picture of God pressing into David, like, you know, when someone jabs you in the side, it's like the most annoying thing in the world, like this God just pushing on him and pushing on him and pushing on him and going, we are going to expose this, because you can't just cover it up. It has to be dealt with. I used to uh, work in youth ministry, and every year we'd take a ski trip to West Virginia, And, you know, when you go as a chaperone on a ski trip with high school kids, you don't actually get to ski because the ski patrol is calling you, like, every three minutes to deal with a problem, or an injury, or something. And so I don't even know why I put skis on, but one time I was coming down, and they call me, and I answer, and they're like, hey, one of your kids got hurt, like, we're at the bunny slope. And my first thought is, how do you get hurt on the bunny slope? Like, what are we doing, right? And so I show up, and this girl was, like, at ski school trying to learn to ski. She's on the ground, in the snow, And there's like this massive three-foot circle of blood on the ground underneath her, okay? So that's the first thing I walk up to. But this girl is laughing and flirting with the ski patrol guy. That's what's happening when I ski up. So I'm like, is he hurt or you hurt? I don't know what's happening. But here's what happened. He pulled me aside, and he's like, hey, here's the deal. She fell, and you know, the sides of skis are really sharp. We don't really realize that because whatever, but they're really sharp. So she fell somehow on the bunny slope. She got discombobulated, and the side of her ski cut into her leg right there, and it's all the way to the bone. Uh, And I wrapped it as tight as humanly possible, so she feels like it's not a big deal, and she never actually saw it, so she thinks we're good, but you're going to want to go to the emergency room. So, we're in West Virginia, and we go to the emergency room, and, and so it's half emergency room, half vet, right? And so the animals are in there with you. No, <laughs> not really, not really, not really. So, so we're in the emergency room. I'm sorry if you're from West Virginia. I don't know. Um, we're in the emergency room, and what would ha- I don't know if you've ever gone to the emergency room when it's really busy, but it was busy that day, and, and it was a tough day for dogs and deer and stuff. And so what they would do is like... Um, She had it wrapped up, but the the person, the check-in person, has to assess, like, how much of a, you know, problem you are or whatever. And so uh, they unwrap it, and as soon as they unwrap it, the girl is screaming bloody murder. And the person checking it's like, I'm so sorry, and, like, wraps it back up, and then she's good. Okay, so then we get to, like, the charge nurse, and she's like, hey, I need to look at it and assess it. So she unwraps it, bloody murder, right? And I'm like, can we, like, take a picture or something? Like, why do we keep having to go through this exercise? But she wraps it back up. Okay, so finally, we get back to the doctor, right? And we're in the doctor's room. Now, I know I just lied to you all, and so you're going to think I'm making this up. But this part is true, I promise. She unwrapped it and then took her fingers and stuck it in the cut as deep as she could. And she's making eye contact with me going, hey, like, just how, where are you guys skiing? I'm like, I don't, what is happening right now? This is way too much. And the poor girl is like, I don't know how she didn't pass out, right? Like, she just like, is in such pain. But here's the picture. As long as it was covered, she felt fine. It was hidden. The air wasn't hitting it. She was good. She could have carried on like that forever. But the doctor knew, and the nurses knew, and the hospital knew, if we don't uncover that and deal with it, pretty soon infection's going to set in. That's going to spread into your leg. It's going to spread into your body. That's going to kill you. So not exposing it is actually the worst possible thing we can do for you, and God does the exact same thing. Because He loves you, because He knows the seriousness of sin, He's going to expose it in your life. He's going to, because it has to be dealt with. And so here's the opportunity you have. We just confessed, but you have this opportunity all the time, every day, all week, to say to God, I'm not going to wait for you to expose my sin. I know it's going to be painful and it's going to hurt, and I'm not really sure how this is going to go down, but I'm going to expose my sin to you so that you can cover it. And that's what God loves to do in our lives. He wants us to come out of hiding so he can expose and treat our sin. And so the second thing we see is this. If we don't cover ourselves, we allow God instead to cover us. Look back at verse 1. Blessed is the one whose sin is covered. This word covered literally means to hide something from sight. And so you think back to Genesis 3. It's such a beautiful picture and, and such a key moment where we find out the heart of our God and who he is, right? So Adam and Eve fall into sin, God shows up on the scene they're naked and exposed they put the fig leaves on and they're hiding right like the first game of hide and seek in the history of the world and it's like when i play hide and seek with my 3-year-old daughter and she's like in a lump under the covers in the middle of the floor and her legs are hanging out but she thinks i can't see her you know and i'm like where where could she be you know that whole game imagine god coming up to that scene and what's he going to do how's he going to respond is he going to heap more shame on them? Is he going to just wash his hands and say, I'm done with this situation. I'll make a a new people. We'll figure this out later. No, what does he do? He lays out the very real consequences for sin, but then he does this. He says, hey, take off those fig leaves. Those are ridiculous. They're not doing anything. He kills an animal, takes its skin, and he covers them. From the very beginning, this picture of the gospel of the Lamb of God who would one day be torn apart so that you can be covered in the righteousness of Christ, God fully and finally dealing with your sin. The heart of God when you sin is not to crush you. So many of us feel like that. The heart of God when you sin is to cover you, to cover you. And so that's what he does with Adam and Eve, and he does the same thing with us, and we see it too in the life of David You know, we've referenced it a couple of times. We don't know for absolutely for sure if this Psalm 32 is talking about David's sin with Bathsheba, but we're pretty sure, pretty sure. And you think about that situation with David and all that's happened. He for sure has slept with another man's wife. It's arguable that he raped her. Then he, and she's pregnant, So then he decides, I'm going to call the husband back and try to trick him, lie to him, and say that he's the one who got her pregnant. He's too honorable to do it. So he calls Uriah, uh, sends a man to the front line to call Uriah to the front line. You know the story. He gets killed. He murders him, basically. So David is um, sown this web of lies, maybe raped someone, committed adultery, murdered someone. A whole nation is devastated because of his selfishness. He tries to cover it up, and then Nathan confronts him. And just listen to this conversation that we see in 2 Samuel 12. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. Ha! For real? Adultery, rape, lies, murder, conspiracy, whole nation ruined? Confess it to the Lord, the Lord's put it away. For real? You believe that gospel? (laughs) Like, do you really believe that? That no matter what you walked in here with this morning, that what you were thinking about when I was talking about that hidden sin that nobody knows about, that that really actually is fully and finally paid for on the cross by Christ. It's covered just through confession? What an amazing reality. We see it here in verse 5, too. He says, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sins. Unbelievable. It's unbelievable. But how does God do that? I mean, isn't he holy? Isn't he just? Doesn't he make all things right? How can he just... It makes me think of, um, you know that junk closet in your house? I haven't been to your house, but you have a junk closet, right? Can we just be honest? And so here's what happens. It's like the people are going to show up unexpectedly at your house, and there's no time to clean. So just like anything and everything, uh, clothes, toys, pets, a kid if you need to, food, all in the junk closet, right? Just like push it in, shove it in. If anyone opened it, it would be like avalanche of junk on top of them. You know what I'm talking about? Everybody has one. Is that how God works? Hey, just Let's just shove it away. Let's just don't worry about it. Let's just push it into the junk closet. No, the the last thing we see is that God covers us and God doesn't count against us. Look at verse 2. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. You know, being back in Clemson where I went to school reminds me of that recurring dream that I have that I bet a lot of you have too, where I'm in college and there's some class that I forgot I was in until, like, the day before exams. Has anybody ever had that dream before? And just, like, the day before, and you're like, what, what am I supposed to do now? Like, do I study? Do I show up? Do I cheat? Do I flunk out? What do I do? Like, I don't, I'm, I'm, I don't know what to do. It's a horrible dream. Still have them. I don't, I'm way too far out of college to still be having this. But it's You know what's way, way, way better than that? The real-life scenario I got to live out a couple times. I know there's some professors in here, and you know this, but I'll just remind you. If you want to be the most popular person in the world, do this. After an exam, come in and say, wow, you guys really blew this. So here's what we're going to do. None of those grades count towards your final grade. That's like, there's no bigger (laughs) hero in the world than that moment, right, where the professor's like, the exam doesn't count because you all blew it so badly, Here's what we have to believe as Christians if we want to know that our sin is fully and finally really dealt with. You have to really believe that God no longer counts your sin against you. Meaning this, look at me, this is so important. God's not in heaven, Christian, keeping score with you. He's not just tallying it up and going, oh, I'm gonna get them back for this one day. Here's a heart test. When something really bad happens in your life is your immediate response to go, yeah, I kind of knew it. I've been screwing up a lot recently and I knew, God, I knew God would get me eventually. Don't we do that all the time? That God still counts our sins against us. We have to believe that he doesn't. So how, how do we know that? How do we know that God doesn't count our sin against us? We know because the verse doesn't say a man is blessed if God doesn't count his sin. That's the junk closet mentality. It says God doesn't count his sin against him meaning he does count it against someone else. We have to remind ourselves all the time, God doesn't count our sins against us, not because he's just a nice guy, not because, just because he loves us. He doesn't count our sins against us because they've already been counted against Christ on the cross. All of them nailed to the cross with Christ, fully paid for on our account. They've been counted, they're just not counted against you. And so we have to work that deep into our souls. That's why 1 John 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins. You know how I subtly think we read that verse a lot? God's faithful and loving to forgive our sins. Or he's faithful and kind to forgive our sins. If he's in a good mood that day, he'll forgive our sins. No, no, no. The verse says, when you confess, God's faithful and just to forgive your sins that he cannot count your sins against you if you've placed your faith in Christ because they've already been counted against him. He can't now punish you for them. Jesus has already taken it all for you. And so the great news of the gospel is this. There is a massive curve. Every Christian gets the grade of the best student in class. (laughs) Our older brother Jesus, who lived it perfectly for us, who died the death that we deserve to die, We're justified because of him, forgiven because of him. And so just very quickly, let me give you two practical things this passage says that we have to do if we're going to start letting God cover us through confession. The first thing we have to do is we have to learn to hate our sin. We have to learn to hate our sin. I think the reality, maybe you have a hard time with confession. You don't confess very often. You come back to church maybe every week or however often you come and you think, and I don't think I've confessed since the last time I was here. I think that sometimes. How do we get out of that rut? Biblically, we have to learn to hate our sin and not just the consequences of our sin. A lot of us don't hate our sin. We just hate the consequences. We don't like getting caught. We don't like how we have to uh, pay for it. And so we confess, but that kind of confession will only take us so far. It won't really change our hearts. Look back at verse 9. It says, don't be like a horse or a mule. <laughs> Generally good advice, right? Like, hey, don't be a horse or a mule. Like, if you say that to anyone today, they're like, okay, you're right, I know, right? But what in the world is that talking about in the context of Psalm 32? Hey, I don't know how many of you watch um, uh, like the Kentucky Derby I don't really watch it because I don't understand the pregame coverage, it's like 14 hours long and I don't know when the race is going to happen, it lasts like two minutes, so I just watch it on the internet later, okay? So, but I did see this, uh, this year in the Kentucky Derby, Rich Strike. Did anybody see this? Just nod at me if you kind of have any idea what I'm talking about. Nope, okay. So, um, the, the, he's like the long shot, he's not supposed to win. I don't know how they know that because he's a horse, but whatever. So, he's like not supposed to win at all, right? And he's like in the very back of the pack. The announcer doesn't even know the horse's name. And they have this like overhead shot of him like maneuvering through the field and like getting to the front. And the announcer's just focused on the front too. And Rich Strike's like coming out of nowhere to win, okay? And the announcer has no idea. And I'm watching that and I'm like, that's amazing. Like how does that little tiny jockey dude, he's like this tall, like how does he get the horse to move like that, to maneuver in and out like that? I'm just trying not to fall off a horse if I ride a horse, right? How does he do that? You know how he doesn't do it? He doesn't do it by leaning over and going, hey buddy, what do you think about turning left? (laughs) Right? No, he like takes the whip and like whips him. He's like kicking him in the side and the horse is thinking, fine, I'll go left. Just like stop kicking me. I don't know if horses think, but you know, you get the picture, right? The horse like doesn't hate the sin, he just hates the consequences. He's only turning because of the consequence, right? God's saying, don't just confess because of the consequences of your sin, learn to hate your sin. How do we do that? This word confess, uh, if you looked like at the original meaning, what it really means is to speak the same. That's how you would translate it literally. Or you might say to be of the same mind or to see it the same way. Here's how you learn to hate your sin. If you're here this morning, you don't really hate your sins, you don't really confess. Here's what you have to learn to do. You have to learn somehow to see your sin from God's perspective. What would it be like to create people and know the best way for them to live that leads to joy and fullness of life and to watch them over and over and over again not live like that? But to over and over again forgive them. And for them to over and over again turn their back on you and say, yeah, but I kind of know the best way. What would that be like? That's why David says in Psalm 51, against you only have I sinned, God. And I think we should read that and go, ah, that's not technically true. Uriah, he's probably got like a small beef. Bathsheba, she's got something to say about that, the whole nation. But what's he really saying? He's saying, no, I finally see that it's not just the consequences of my sin. I see that there's a holy God and there's a bigger picture here. And my sin is so offensive to you, God, and I hate what I did. And so we have to learn to hate our sin. And then lastly, we have to remember the whole point. We have to remember the whole point of confession. I can still remember when I was a college student, I went to Passion and John Piper was speaking and he asked this question. He said, in his like John Piper way that I can't replicate, but if you've heard him, just like insert that. He says, "Um, who cares about forgiveness, right? And I remember thinking, I realize I'm supposed to like, I don't know, I'm supposed to do this moment, but like I care about forgiveness, He's like, who cares? He's like, why do you care about forgiveness? And I remember thinking, well, I don't want to go to hell. Sounds pretty bad. Uh, I don't like feeling guilty all the time. That would be another reason. And he literally said, if you only care about forgiveness because you don't want to go to hell and feel f- uh, guilty all the time, you don't understand the gospel at all. And I'm like, is John Piper, like, in my brain right now? Like, I don't understand what connection is happening. But he went on to make this point. He said, imagine… Um, You and your spouse get in a massive fight at home. If you're not married, you and a best friend, a roommate, whatever, you get in a massive fight. I've had one or two of those, so I have some experience in my house with a massive fight with my spouse. And you know what that's like, right? If you're married, like, you're in this huge fight. You don't reconcile right away. You're, like, in separate rooms, not talking. You pass each other in the hallway, and I'm, like, going to look this way. I'm not even going to look at you. Y'all don't do that in Clemson? Just Greenville? Okay, so just pretend with me that that might happen. It's like this cold war going on. And then, like, something happens where God softens one of your hearts, right? And you go to the other person, and you're like, hey, I'm sorry. I blew it. Whatever happened, blah, blah, blah. What you don't want in that moment is for your spouse to go, it's fine. I forgive you. Nobody wants that, right? Huh. You want, when you say that, for your spouse to soften, for their countenance to change, for them to move towards you and say, I'm sorry too, and to hug again and to be reconciled, right? Isn't that what you really want? What's the whole point of confession? The whole point of confession is not just to make sure God's not against you anymore. No, it's to be reconciled to God. It's to get whatever is in the way of relationship with God to just move it so that you can have God back. So you can have a daily walk with him, walking by the Spirit, with God every day, the joy and the love that you feel because of your relationship with God, you want that back. It reconciles you to God. Look at what David says in verse 7 and 10. He says, you're a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. David's not thinking I just want to make sure God's not against me anymore. David's thinking, no, I want to experience the steadfast love of God that I once felt surround me again. I want that back. And so I'm going to confess. I'm going to do whatever it takes to get that sin out of the way so I get it back. And he does. As I was um, looking at Psalm 32 this week, I just kept thinking about Luke 15 and the prodigal son. It just kept coming to mind. It's such a great story for so many ways But, you know, you think about the prodigal son who ran away, squandered all his father's wealth, got into all kinds of sin, and he finally comes to his senses. But what does he say? He's like, you know what? Uh, The son thing is out the window, right? No longer a son. Totally get it. Maybe, Maybe my dad will let me come back and be a servant, though. So he, like, rehearses his speech. He, like, gets it all ready. If texting were around then, he would have texted his dad, like, the perfect, you know, whatever. But he's, like, walking up to the house, and what happens? He's ready with his speech. I just want to be a servant, not a son. And his dad runs to him, hugs him, and starts just kissing him. Charles Spurgeon uh, preached a sermon on that phrase, and he kissed him one time. And the last thing I want to do in this sermon, it's really the last thing we'll do, is I just want to read you what he says about this moment, all in this framework of, what's it like when we go to God to confess? So if you're taking notes, just stop taking notes. And just imagine with me for a second, what do you think about when you go to God to confess? you got your speech, you got your list of sins, you're ready to give it to Him. Listen to what Spurgeon says, and let this gospel reminder just nourish you. There stood His Son, ready to confess His sin. Therefore did His Father kiss Him all the more. The Father's heart is overflowing with gladness. He cannot restrain His delight. Let me try to describe the scene The father has kissed the son, and he bids him sit down. And then he comes in front of him, and he looks at him, and he feels so happy that he says, I must give you another kiss. By the way, this is Charles Spurgeon. Like, this is not uh, like touchy-feely 21st century preacher, right? Okay, just so we're clear. All right, keep going. Then he walks away for a minute, but he's back again before long saying to himself, oh, I must give him another kiss. And he gives him another, for he's so happy. His heart beats fast. He feels very joyful. The old man would like the music to strike up. He wants to be at dancing. But meanwhile, he satisfies himself by a repeated look at his long-lost child. And then listen to this. Oh, I believe that God looks at the sinner and looks at him again and keeps on looking at him, all the while delighting at the very sight of him when he is truly repentant. And comes back to his father's house. Father, we want to experience that reality. Huh. The gospel is almost too much for us to believe sometimes. It's too hard to grasp. It's too good of news. It can't possibly be true for us. And yet it is. And so maybe God, what I'd ask for you for our hearts this morning. Maybe it's just that we would leave with this reality that when we come to confession, we don't leave as um, forgiven slaves. (laughs) No, we are adopted sons. We remain in the family. We're sons and daughters that you love and adore, and you're waiting for us to come to you to confess so that we can have you back. And so, God, I pray for this church. I pray that uh, among many things that would mark it, that they would be a repentant people who constantly think to confess, who hate their sin with a deep hatred and love their Father with such a deep love, that they're just always coming to you looking for sin they can confess to you and not wondering how you're going to respond, but knowing that you've already counted all of it against your son so that they're forgiven and loved and greeted with this kiss. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the gospel. Work it, work it deep into our souls so that we believe it and know that our sin and our guilt has been fully and finally dealt with at the cross. And so hear our worship now. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.